You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. May peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. As you all know that it is our tradition that um, we will present three segments. And um, the headlines, in the first half an hour, we will present um, the headlines and the weather as well. Um, but before that, um, I will um, present to you the topics, the three topics w- uh, about which we will we will be talking about. The first segment will be about World Environment Day. The second uh, topic will be childbirth has hit its lowest in a decade in the UK. And the third will be raising awareness for postpartum depression. Um, with me, uh, Mubariz Amini has joined. Uh, Mubariz, how are you doing yourself? Assalamu alaikum, may the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you, Daniel. Um, yeah, I'm good, doing good, Alhamdulillah, uh, by the grace of Allah. How are you? Uh, Alhamdulillah, I'm doing good as well. Um, enjoying the weather? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we had a bit of a nice warm walk into the studio today, didn't we? Mm-hmm, um, yeah. And hopefully that's going to continue to to last as well but it's still cloudy outside uh oh yeah uh, we shouldn't forget that we're living in britain yeah um and we could get the british weather anytime we you know it could just mm. um s- s- switch on us all of a sudden without us knowing mm. um but before that we delve into our main segments uh, the three segments which i have um said before you uh, Mumbai, would you like to um, tell us about the weather, about the coming days? Yeah, uh, indeed. So today we will see uh, early sunshine in the east, replaced by cloudy skies for all. Rain will continue to sweep in across northern and western areas, reaching eastern parts later in the day. Tonight, rain will clear east, leaving drier conditions and variable cloud. A few spells of rain lingering in in southern Scotland and and northern England. Showers arriving for Northern Ireland by dawn. Tomorrow, after some early brightness, it will turn cloudy from the west as another band of showery rain pushes east for most. Behind this, sunny spells and scattered showers in the northwest. Sunny spells and patchy cloud for most on Thursday with scattered showers. Most likely in the northwest, wet for much of the day in the southeast, turning windy on Friday with cloud and rain moving across the north and west, but drier and brighter in the southeast. Breezy on Saturday with early rain clearing the southeast, leaving it largely dry with sunny spells. So um, we're looking at a few spells here and there as well at the same time. Um, and hopefully we will we will um, get to enjoy a warmer temperature as well at the same time. Mm, yeah, of course. Um, now we will delve into the headlines of the week. And uh, but before that, um, I would like to say that our listeners to contact us um, if they have any queries or questions, you can contact us via email, um, uh, or you can call us at. Um, zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight, or you can tweet us at Voice of Islam UK, or you can go to our website, which is 
www.voiceofislam.co.uk and the headlines of the of the of the week and the bbc it says that uh, newspaper headlines uh, putin defined and fury over new lawrence suspect a number of uh, Tuesday's uh, papers report on the aftermath of the attempted uh, mutiny by the Wagner Group in Russia over the weekend. The elites, with a televised address delivered on Monday night by a defiant President Vladimir Putin, quoting him as saying, the mutineers uh, wanted our society to drown in blood, but urging Russians to forgive those who have fought in Ukraine. The Times reports that Putin said Wagner's fighters had been lied to by the organizers, organizers of the rebellion, but did not mention the group's leader by name. It says he added the Kremlin would honor the terms of a deal, struck to halt the advance on Moscow, under which Fryagzin will, will, will move to Belarus. President Putin said Ukraine and the West had wanted Russian soldiers to kill each other, to kill military personnel and civilians. So that in the end Russia so that in the end Russia would lose and our society would choke in bloody civil strife, according to the Guardian. The paper adds that he appeared to suggest the Wagner Group would still be shut down with its fighter given a choice between signing a contract with the Ministry of Defense and relocating to Belarus. The Daily Telegraph leads with comments by Pryagazin also delivered on Monday night in which he said the march on Moscow had been a masterclass in how the invasion of Ukraine in February last year should have been conducted. Speaking for the first time since the uh, since, uh, revolt, he said that if the invasion had been launched by a unit just as well trained, with the same level of morale and preparedness as his own, then maybe the special military operation would have lasted 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Pragozin uh, also denied that his march on Moscow was an attempt to overthrow the government and instead directed further criticism at Russia's unprofessional military leadership. The Financial Times reports. The paper quotes US President Joe Biden saying that the rebellion was part of a struggle within the Russian system and Joseph Borrell, the EU's chief diplomat, saying it showed Putin's military power is cracking. The father of Stephen Lawrence, the black teenager whose 1993 murder led to an inquiry into institutional racism in the Metropolitan Police, has berated the force after, after it emerged there was a sixth suspect in his son's killing. The Daily Mail reports. It comes after a BBC investigation named Matthew White, who died in 2021, as a suspect alongside the five that were previously known and revealed evidence that could have placed him at the scene of the crime. Speaking to the Mail, Neville Lawrence describes it as appalling that White escaped justice for 28 years, but adds, we have uncovered so many flaws in the police investigation that it hardly comes as a surprise. 
The Daily, the Daily Mirror leads on the BBC's investigation into the Stephen Lawrence case, highlighting an incident in 2020 when White assaulted a black shop worker and was said to have threatened the man by telling him, you will be Stephen Lawrence. The inquest into the death of Nicola Bully, the 45-year-old mother of two whose disappearance in January sparked a weeks-long police search, has heard that she drowned after falling into an icy river and was not harmed by any third party, the Metro reports. The Sun says the inquest was told Bully would have drowned within 10 seconds of entering the river. It says that, asked if that was any evidence she had been attacked, Home Office pathologist Dr. Allison Armour replied, No, there is not. And the Daily Express carries a plea to bank bosses to guarantee that they will keep branches open to help um, customers through the cost of living crisis and save the UK's highest streets. The paper quotes uh, Mandy Beach, uh, a senior executive at the Nationwide Building Society, saying branches are about much more than cash and opening accounts and that retailers should commit to being there today, let alone tomorrow. A number of uh, Tuesday's paper uh, report on the aftermath of the attempted mutiny by the Wagner Group in Russia over the weekend. The eye leads on what it calls a fury televised address by Russian President Vladimir Putin on Monday night in which he promised retribution against the rebellion's organizers. The paper highlights a comment by a Russian MP who said the group's leader Yagni Prigozhin should receive a bullet to the head that, according to the article, suggests that the regime in Moscow is likely to respond to the mutiny by increasing repression. In an editorial, the Times warns that Putin could choose to escalate the war in Ukraine in the hope of diverting attention from his growing troubles at home. The paper says it would be foolhardy to bet on his imminent overthrow and that Europe will have to brace itself for more upheaval as he fights for the survival of his regime. The Guardian reports that the Wagner Group appeared to be continuing some of its operations yesterday. The mercenaries told the paper that their five recruitment centers across Russia were open for business as usual and that some of their fighters had returned to their bases in the Russian-occupied areas of eastern Ukraine. On its front page, the Daily Telegraph highlights a call by UK's Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Patrick Sanders, for more troops and a bigger defence budget in response to the threat from Moscow. He says Britain should never again be unprepared as our forebears were during the rise of Hitler in the 1930s. According to the paper, the general compared to the UK's outdated 
tanks to rotary dial phones in an iPhone age. The, finan the Financial Times has spoken to the deputy head of the International Monetary Fund, Gita Gopinath, who warns that central ban banks might have to tolerate a longer period of inflation about their 2% target in order to avoid a financial crisis. She said further that significant interest rates um, rise could push some heavily indebted European countries into financial difficulties. Several papers uh, report that Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is preparing to take on the banks over what the, the Daily Mail calls the stingy interest rates offered to many savers. The paper says banks have been accused of uh, profiting by hiking interest rates for borrowers while leaving rates for savers low. The time says that Mr. Hunt has ordered civil servants to draw up uh, plans to force banks to increase rates on saving accounts more quickly. The Sun is one of a number of papers highlighting a home office report which says the cost of sending each asylum seeker to Rwanda could be £169,000. In an editorial, the paper describes the figure as staggering but says allowing migrants to keep coming could ultimately cost £11 billion a year in accommodation bills. And The Guardian reports that the world's last gaslit cinema, the Hyde Park Picture House in Leeds, is reopening on Friday following a major refurbishment. The cinema first opened its doors um, shortly before the onset of the First World War, according to the paper. According to the paper, the women were at the mercy of men who used the darkness as a cover to group them. To group them, so gas lamps were installed to deter would-be assailants. So these were the headlines uh, of the weeks uh, of the week, um, and uh, now, um, as you all know, um, that uh, one of the um, one of the pillars of Islam is uh, Hajj, and um, we are very close uh, to that um, pillar, and many of the Muslims. Many Muslims from all around the world will be going to Hajj and uh, they have already started their Hajj uh, which starts from uh, Mina to Arafat and then Arafat to Muzdalafa and then to Mina and uh, so on. And um, as it is uh, approaching very near and so I would like to give a brief um, uh, introduction about Hajj, what is Hajj and uh, what Islam says about this pilgrimage to Makkah and uh, Hajj is the fifth pillar of Islam and uh, Muslims from around the world make their uh, journey uh, every, every year to Makkah uh, in the last month of Islamic calendar uh, which is known as uh, Zulhaj 
and it is compulsory for Muslims who meet the condition of Hajj to perform it at least once in their lives and Hajj takes place between the 8th and 12th of Zulhijjah and Hajj is a Sunnah uh, Sunnah means uh, the um, custom of the or the tradition of the Holy Prophet uh, may peace and blessing Allah be upon him um, Hajj is a sunnah of the Holy Prophet uh, who performed Hajj once in, a, in his life. The Hajj, the history of the Hajj is closely linked uh, to that of Ibrahim, uh, Ibrahim and Ishmael and um, Hajra. The Holy Prophet, uh, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, is reported to have said that Islam is built upon five pillars. Number one, worshipping Allah alone and rejecting all other gods. Number two, establishing prayer. Number three, zakat. Um, number four, performing the pilgrimage to the house of Allah. And number five is um, fasting uh, during the month of Ramadan. So, in the Holy Quran, um, Allah the Almighty says regarding Hajj um, that, and complete the Hajj and the Umrah for the sake of Allah but if you are kept back then make whatever offering is easily available and do not shave your heads until the offering reaches its destination and whoever among you is sick or has an ailment of the head should make an expiation either by fasting or almsgiving or a sacrifice but when you are safe then he who would avail himself of the Umrah together with the Hajj should make whatever offering is easily obtainable. But such of you uh, as cannot find an offering should fast three days during the pilgrimage and seven, and seven days when you return home. These are ten complete days. This is for him whose family does not reside near the sacred mosque and fear Allah and know that Allah is severe in punishing so there are different steps um, of the Hajj and um, um, number one is um, that upon reaching the designated Mikat uh, Mikat is they are the locations where the pilgrim uh, assumes Ihram and uh, the pilgrim enters the state of Iram. These locations are situ uh, situated outside the Haram, but are specifically uh, designated for this purpose. Then um, the male pilgrim removes his regular clothing and assumes the Iram while leaving the head uncovered, while the female pilgrim has the option of wearing the usual yet simple attire while keeping her face uncovered and uh, then number three the haji uh, who is doing the pilgrimage um, he is required to he or she is required to recite the following repeatedly that labbaik allahumma labbaik labbaik la sharika laka labbaik innal hamda wa ni'mata laka wal mulk la sharika laka so these are the wordings these are the arabic wordings which um, he or she has to recite um, loudly uh, which uh, and it means that my lord i am at thy service there is no equal or partner with thee so i am at thy service alone all praise belongs to thee 
and all blessings are from the and all authority rest in the i say again that there's no equal or partner with thee so i am at thy service alone then um there are many other um um things um which or many other steps which uh, he or she has to follow after this but um as the time is short and we have to start our other segment as well so we will take a short break and after the short break uh, we will join you and uh, please do join in uh, and we will start our first segment which is world environment day please uh, uh, join us after the break it was for me that god caused the solar and lunar eclipses in heaven during the month of ramadan and caused numerous other signs to be manifested on earth and thus in accordance with divine practice my truth was conclusively established god in whose hand rests my life is my witness that if you cleanse your hearts and seek other signs from god the omnipotent one is capable of showing a sign according to his own will and power without being subject to any of your importunities and i am sure that if you demand a sign from me with a genuine desire to repent and promise earnestly before god that if an extraordinary sign appears which is beyond human power you will shed all this rancor and enmity and purely for the sake of winning god's pleasure will enter into the pledge of bet with me then god being so kind and merciful will certainly show you some sign however it is not within my power to fix a period of 2 or 3 days for showing a sign or to do exactly as you wish it is the prerogative of god to choose the time writings of the promised messiah alayhisalam i always wonder how high was the status of this arab prophet whose name was muhammad thousands of blessings and peace be upon him one cannot reach the limit of his high status and it is not given to man to estimate correctly his spiritual effectiveness it is a pity that his rank has not been recognized as it should have been he was the champion who restored to the world the unity of god which had disappeared from the world he loved god in the extreme and his soul melted out of sympathy for mankind a new station the voice of islam with live discussions religion and culture understand the true teachings of islam with the voice of islam assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh may peace and blessings of allah be upon you all uh, this is myself daniel speaking and uh, you are listening to daniel and my co-host mubariz amini and uh, this is our first segment which is which will be about world environment day and uh, before that uh, again i would urge uh, our listeners to do join in and uh, if they have any questions please do ask us and which you can do us uh, which you, which you can do at um, by calling us at 020 8687 7878 or you can tweet us at uh, voice of islam uk or you can go to our website and 
which is voiceofislam.co.uk and um, also uh, you will uh, listen to our uh, esteemed guest as well um, and their um, profound and their insight as well but before that um, I would like to give you the gist of the story about World Environment Day which is um, that the World Environment Day was established by the UN to serve as a reminder and encourage awareness for the protection of the environment as well as steps to tackle plastic pollution. Now it is more vital than ever that we take steps and measures to tackle pollution and its impacts on other ecosystems such as um, the ocean. Uh, Mubariz, um, if you can um, to tell our listeners that why are people who live in you know low-income countries uh, they are more likely to be affected by the climate change and um, pollution well Daniel um, you know people living in in low-income countries um, are more likely to be affected by climate change and and pollution due to several factors um, one of them being uh, vulnerability you know low-income countries often like often lack the the necessary infrastructure and and resources to adapt and and mitigate the the impacts of climate change you know they have uh, they may have limited um, access to to clean water uh, sanitation healthcare and and other basic services which you know which uh, we take for granted and which makes their populations more vulnerable to the to the adverse effects of of climate change um, dependence on, on, on natural resources, you know, is also uh, a cause, you know. Uh, many low-income countries rely heavily on, on uh, natural resources for their livelihoods, such as uh, agriculture, fishing and, and forestry. So climate, climate change uh, disrupts these, these sectors through extreme weather events, changing rainfall patterns and, and rising temperatures, leading to reduced agricultural productivity, disrupted ecosystems, and declining fish stocks. Um, then we have the fact that there must be limited adaptive capacity. So low-income countries often have limited financial resources and, and technical capabilities um, and capacities to, to implement climate change adaption measures. You know, they may lack the infrastructure and, and, and technology needed to protect communities from extreme weather events, such as building um, robust flood defences or early warning systems. Um, so we can also, um, you know, uh, look at how has plastic population then harmed uh, mm. habitats and, and ecosystems such as the ocean. Mm. Um, so plastic pollution has has significant negative impacts on uh, habitats and ecosystems, particularly in the in the ocean. Mm. So uh, marine wildlife, uh, plastic debris in the in the ocean uh, possesses a, a serious threat to marine wildlife. Animals like seabirds, turtles, whales, and dolphins can become entangled in plastic or mistake it for food, leading to injury, suffocation, or starvation. The ingestion, the, the, the ingestion of plastic can cause internal injuries and, and disrupt the digestive systems of, of, of marine organi- uh, organisms. Uh, 
um, plastic pollution can can disrupt marine ecosystems by altering habitats and food chains. Uh, coral reefs, seagrass beds, and other critical habitats can be smothered or damaged by plastic debris, affecting the biodiversity and productivity of these of these ecosystems. Plastics can 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 leach harmful chemicals into the water, such as um, such as um, BPA. These chemicals can accumulate in the tissues of of marine um, organisms, uh, potentially uh, disrupting their reproductive systems and overall health. So, which countries are the biggest contributors to plastic pollution and what are they doing to, to tackle this problem then? Um, so, there are several countries um, um, who are major contributors to plastic pollution. Um, with the top contributors being China, Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, and Thailand, and um, but however, it's important to you know uh, note that uh, plastic pollution is is a global uh, problem because uh, although the, the these countries uh, they are contributing um, in them, but the responsibility is for all. It's a global responsibility and uh, the responsibility for addressing it extends beyond these countries. Now we have with us our guest, a very esteemed guest, um, Dr. Stephen Harrison. Dr. Stephen Harrison is a professor of climate and environmental change at the University of uh, Exeter and my and his area of research is on the effects of climate change on high mountains, uh, mountain glaciers. Uh, he's a member of the UK government's climate change expert committee, which advises on the impact of climate change on all UK nuclear sites. And uh, he is also the climate change lead author for the United Nations GEO 7 report. Um, Doctor, welcome to the show, and good morning, and peace be on you. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, doctor, um, this year's theme uh, for World Environment Day is under the campaign uh, hashtag Beat Plastic Pollution. Mm. How does the production and disposal of plastic contribute to uh, climate change? That's an interesting question. I, I, I guess the the main way is that it's a, it's a symptom it's a symptom essentially mm. of our overproduction our overindustrialization isn't it that we that we use plastic to the extent that we do is is because we have uh, in especially in the in the global north um, we have developed our society to the extent that we are we don't care essentially about how we um, get rid of the mm. the 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 things that, that allow us to, um, to to have developed. So, so plastic is a is a waste product from um, from our consumerist society, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and and another asset aspect of that consumerist society is the is the global greenhouse emissions, which are driving climate change. So it's part and parcel of the same uh, ma major issue. Mm. Um, uh, that clearly, there are lots of other ways plastic c contributes to, uh, to to climate change, and, um, and and some of those are physical ones because it, it affects the the reflectivity of the oceans, 
and also affects ocean uh, ecosystems, which which um, may also have uh, an impact. But I think I think plastic is the is just another example of how we have over the last um, centuries or so have um, affected our environment in a, in a negative way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, most certainly. And how has the COVID-19 pandemic positively or more, you can say, negatively impacted our environment? Well, interestingly, one of the things that we noticed through COVID is, of course, mm-hmm. that people didn't travel as much and we didn't fly as much. And that must have had an impact. That must have reduced our carbon emissions, um, mm-hmm. especially from aircraft flying at high altitudes. Um, I, I think actually, sort of more practically, I think that COVID showed us, showed us as a global society that mm-hmm. we are able to um, make enormous um, changes to our society and, and enormous sacrifices and behave um, in many ways quite um, altruistically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that gives me some sort of hope and, and uh, that we might mm-hmm. do the same for things like climate change. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the global um, fight against COVID, which was coordinated uh, by countries around the world and mm-hmm. the, um, the number of scientists who got together and worked together and engineers and others and health and health specialists who worked together globally to fight this, it sort of it, it makes you, it shows you what we can do as a global society when we actually put our minds to it. So in some ways, it's probably been a, a positive. Hmm. Yeah, certainly we are, you know, potentially able to tackle uh, yeah. this problem. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And how can policies and regulations be designed to address both climate change and uh, the plastic pollution simultaneously? Well, any policy that would um, try and reduce the amount of waste that mm. we produce from our um, from our consumer societies would clearly be would clearly impact both of those issues. If we if we decide to to not to have such a throwaway culture where we use um, goods and services very rapidly and then discard them for a, for another set, that mm. sure, that will have an impact on plastic pollution. That will reduce plastic pollution. But at the same time, we'll produce a, in a, say, a, a recognition that actually those sorts of throwaway societies and that um, will, uh, are also contributing to climate change. So I think, as I said at the, at the beginning, I think these are, these are two sides of the same coin. If we address one, hmm. by definition, we must be addressing the other. So, um, so climate change policies would also reduce plastic pol- uh, pollution because we would change the way in which our societies um, mm. operated. And, Doctor, what would you like to say about uh, those countries um, who are, you know, uh, underdeveloped and, or underprivileged? Um, um, the, you know, the effect, uh, its effect uh, uh, on their health, uh, it's a very drastic effect on their health. Yes. How they can, you know, tackle this issue? Well, that's one of the great questions of our age, isn't it? The, mm. the fact that climate change um, is, has a disproportionate impact globally. Some parts of the globe will get a will, will be affected by, well, all parts of the globe will be affected by climate change, but there are clearly some parts of the globe, mm. mainly in the global south, w- which will be uh, affected to the extent that um, it will create enormous amounts of migration and, and uh, potentially conflict as well. So, you know, th- this is where we need, this is where organizations and governments have to come together, and they do so in the COP meetings and, and uh, UN meetings, to, to try and broker some global um, 
uh, agreement that, that we're going to have to try and reduce our, uh, our carbon emissions. And those, mm -hmm. those agreements have been brokered, and, have, and these agreements have been, have been accepted. Mm -hmm. um, it, what it now requires is for governments all around the world to, to actually, to actually um, uh, do the hard work in making sure those agreements are, are, um, are met. Mm, yeah, certainly, certainly. But what we can do, uh, or the government can do, uh, so that, you know, uh, there are policies, I know, and you know that, but how to implement them uh, in the society? Because that's the hard part. Yes, it is. Actually, getting governments to, you know, governments uh, are, are, are driven by the wishes of the people mm. who, who democratically or, or sometimes not so democratically elect them. But, gov yeah, so governments have to be held to account. And this is the only way we're going to make progress. Mm. But that requires then that, the, that, that people's actions uh, in, it, it, on the ground, as it were, around how, what, how they spend their money, how they use certain goods, how they use certain services, and how they, how they move away from carbon-intensive um, mm. goods and services, that will be the thing which drives, which mm. drives um, uh, us to a, a greener future mm -hmm. um, and they'll do that only uh, and governments will then will follow because governments always follow what, what, what the people have, uh, and industries do as well so it really comes down to the individual I think in this mm -hmm. yeah certainly and you know doctor the youth have been at uh, the forefront of environmental activity, uh, activism and advocacy mm. how can we empower and support young people uh, to protect our environment. Well, that's that's been a really interesting uh, uh, thing, hasn't it, over the last few mm. decades uh, of how this sort of grassroots movement of uh, um, um, of, of young people who mm. have pushed the uh, and are beginning to push very strongly this this green environmental agenda. So mm. I think our young people today are the the most climate literate people who've ever existed. Mm -hmm. And um, and they will grow up hopefully into sensible and climate literate, literate and and sustainable experts uh, as they w w as they become adults. So, uh, you know, in some ways, our the future of our planet hopefully will be in safer hands than it has been um, in the past. Um, and I think you know we, I don't think we really need to empower young people because young people um, mm -hmm. seem to have a better understanding of climate change. Than, yes, than the older generations mm -hmm. and I think they're the ones who are going to well sadly going to have to clear up the mess that our gener ours and previous generations have mm -hmm. left behind mm -hmm. and lastly doctor uh, your research uh, focuses on how climate change uh, impacts high mountain glacial systems mm. so in your time of uh, traveling to different uh, continents and mountain ranges what have been the biggest impacts to these regions uh, due to climate change? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, and um, I, yeah, I, so I work on high mountain glaciers all, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in South America and in, in um, Asia. Uh, and even over the, over the relatively short period of time, you know, 20 or 30 years that I've been working on these glaciers, I've, I can see that they've been retreating very, very quickly, melting very quickly. Mm -hmm. So there was a glacier in Patagonia that I was on in at the um, um, early 1990s, uh, and when I went back there about 10 years later, it retreated something like three kilometres up valley, uh, and it, and it's a very very vivid sort of view and a very vivid recognition that climate change. It, it sometimes feels a bit sort of 
you can't really see it, it's invisible, you can't really feel it. But actually sometimes when you go to glaciers and other parts of the world, you can see the enormous changes that climate change has had on these uh, pris- you know, pris- pristine environments. So it's quite shocking sometimes. Mm-hmm. Doctor, thank you very much uh, to join. Uh, My pleasure. Yep, thank you very much. It's been a delight to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Have a, a nice day. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, peace be on you. Thank you very much. So that was Dr. Stephen Harrison. Uh, he's a professor of climate and environmental change at the University of um, Exeter, and his area of research is on the effects of climate change on high mountain glaciers. He is a member of the UK government's Climate Change Expert Committee, which advises on the impact of climate change um, on all UK nuclear sites and he is also the climate change lead author for the United Nations GEO7 report. Uh, with this, uh, we will uh, move on to our next guest, um, who is Dr. Justin. Um, Dr. Justin is a professor of science and environmental education in the Center for Climate Change and sustainability education at University College London. He is president of the UK National Association for Environmental Education and a former chair of the London Wildlife Trust. Uh, Doctor, welcome to the show. Good morning and peace be on you. Good morning and thank you for inviting me on. Lower-income countries um, who are more vulnerable to climate change uh, despite not contributing to it as much as high-income countries. Um, what have been some examples of this in the recent time and you know, what kind of the regulations could be put in place to, to support these countries? It's, it's continents, uh, not just countries. The United Nations estimates are up to 600 million more people in Africa mm-hmm. face malnutrition as um, their agricultural systems break down due to the impact of climate change. And the, the, the UNDP um, suggests that an, an, addition, an additional 1.8 billion people could face water shortages, especially in Asia. And as you, as you say, despite historically being the least likely to contribute to um, rising CO2 emissions, people living in poverty are often the worst affected. Nearly <coughs> rising sea levels, uh, extreme weather events, prolonged droughts have, have forced millions of people to lose or move away from their homes every year. Nearly 70% of all new displacements in the first six months of last year were the result of uh, weather-related disasters. So mm-hmm. About 10 million people around the world were driven from their homes by drought, hurricanes and landslides. That's about 50,000 people every day have been forced from their homes by the impact of weather-related disasters. Mm-hmm. And, Doctor, there are some people who deny that um, climate change is happening. How can we better engage with the public and overcome the, this barrier oh, in knowledge? Well, um, yeah, that's, a, that's a challenging question. I think we've all come across people who, um, de- who claim, yeah. claim to deny um, that climate change exists. Mm. Um, uh, there's a, a, a colleague at Boston University, uh, Arun Krishna, who says that before you engage a climate change denier, 
Mm. We've got to try to understand their perspective first. You can't just tell people that they're wrong. That mm. doesn't work. You've got to try and to try and gauge how strong they believe what they what they claim, how mm. motivated they are by climate change, and um, to what extent have they accepted climate change misinformation. But the reality is that the number of people who uh, um, are and misinformation, disinformation, is actually a very small minority population, but it just seems that they've got very loud voices, mm. not, not helped by some bits of the media. If you've got someone who's extremely motivated about climate change, who identifies as a climate change denier, and spouts all kind of conspiracy theories about climate change, you're not really going to convince them about your perspective. But mm. if you think that um, someone is more tentative about the attitude towards climate change, they may be more willing to listen to you and the kind of things that they have accepted as misinformation are easily correctable. So you need to know your you need to know the facts yourself. You need to know what the scientific consensus is so you can try and correct people and point people towards sources of information which are more accurate than the ones they may use themselves. Mm. But as I said, there's no point in trying to convince someone who's um, blind to any, any uh, rational argument in the world. Yeah, certainly. And... Um Doctor, how can environmental education be uh, be incorporated in the curriculum and be appealing uh, appealing uh, to students at the same time? Well, those are, those are two um, related questions which mm. are at the heart of our um, UCL Centre for Climate Change and Sustainability Education. The first thing to say is that we know from uh, research that young people and their teachers want climate change and sustainability to be part of the curriculum. A recent survey that the centre carried out showed that showed that to be the case. Over the last few years, and you'd be aware of this, millions of young people around the world have been expressed their frustration at what they've been taught, at the curriculum, not how they've been taught necessarily. And they've engaged in school strikes, other direct action, and so on. Mm. Now, the, the UK government, the Department of Education's response has usually been, well, you can teach about climate change through science and geography. But that's, that's a very partial answer, and it's not, it's not a very helpful answer, because not to start, not all students do geography all the way through their school careers. But the point is that all subjects can contribute to climate change education, and there has to be an integrated approach to environmental education, not a bit here and a bit there. As to your question, how to make it appealing, hmm. we know that um, encouraging young people to choose the topics they want to know more about and telling them how they can make a difference is better than just telling everyone the same set of facts. The good news is that a number of schools are doing excellent work. Um, together with a colleague, I visited the XP Academy in Doncaster a few months ago, and there's a whole range of schools in London who are doing fantastic work in, in bringing environmental education to the curriculum. What we need is more schools decide for themselves how they're going to respond. Hmm. The, government, the government has a recent policy, uh, Sustainability and Climate Change Education, which means that every school should be rethinking what and how it's teaching. It's a small step in the right direction, but it's good. But it is good to be moving in the right direction. Let's see what the next government does. Mm-hmm. And um, doctor, um, as you you might know that uh, the UK government is introducing a single-use plastic ban. From October 2023. What is your opinion on this uh, this policy? 
Well, the first thing to say is that EU brought in a similar ban two years ago, so mm -hmm. we're already two years behind. Mm -hmm. um, the single-use plastic ban includes plates, bowls, trays, containers, cutlery, balloon sticks, etc. Uh, but there are some exemptions. Basically, it's, it's, it's a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, England uses, England alone, we use 2.7 billion items of single-use cutlery, mm -hmm. most of the plastic. That's shocking. And over 721 million single-use plates per year, but only 10% of those are recycled. If you lined up all those 2.7 billion pieces of cutlery we use every year, it would go around the world eight and a half times. Mm. It's the, the scale of our use of single-use plastics is a real issue. But the problem, and Stephen Harrison, before, uh, who was on before me, mentioned this, we, the problem is we live in a disposable culture. We, we seem to take for granted that you can buy things in containers and then chuck them away, something that people, my parents, would have been horrified by that, by that idea. The mm. danger is, of course, that single-use plastics will be replaced by single-use paper and single-use wooden containers and utensils. What we need to do as a, as a, as a public is mm. to react against this, is to have water bottles, is to take our own utensils to eat with, to reject this uh, disposable packing and the product and move towards something which is um, more sustainable, a, a circular economy, as people talk about it. Hmm. Doctor, has progress been made um, to tackle plastic pollution and its impact on ecosystem? Yes, um, some. If you look at the um, the, the government um, policy of making people supermarkets cha charge for pl uh, plastic, single-use plastic um, bags, it's mm -hmm. had a huge impact. The number of bags that we use per person has dropped by about a factor of about 10. But we still have an enormous, a long way to go. If you want to know more, there's a fascinating um, podcast, Plastic Fantastics, made by my UK UCL colleague, Mark Medovnik, if you want to find out more about it. Our, our global recycling rates are about 10%. So we've still got an enormous way to go before we even scratch the surface. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Justin, thank you very much. Uh, it's been a delight to have you on the show and uh, have a good week ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Peace be on thank you. So that was uh, Dr. Justin, um, who is a professor of science and uh, environmental education in the Center for Climate Change um, and Sustainability Education at University College London. He is president of the UK National Association for Environmental Education and a former chair of the London Wildlife Trust. Um, dear listeners, uh, we are about to reach our 8 o'clock news. And uh, after the 8 o'clock news, uh, we'll start our second segment, um, which will be about um, raising awareness for postpartum uh, depression PPD uh, please do join us after the break and um, do listen to us and if you have any questions please do ask us by calling us at 020-8687-7878 or you can tweet us at voice of islam uk or you can go to our website voiceofislam.co.uk and also, um, our third segment will be um, childbirth, 
um, has childbirth hit its uh, childbirth birth has hit its lowest in a decade in the UK. So here is the eight o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamualaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome back to the show, dear listeners. You are listening to myself, Daniel Ahmed, and my co-host, Mumbai Zamini. And uh, now we will listen to a short clip, um, um, which will be about the... Um, that how important is it for Ahmadis uh, to tackle climate change? Let's listen to this clip. My question is, how important is it for Ahmadi Muslims to fight climate change? Very important. You should try to avoid using your car while traveling for a short distance. Either walk to that place or use bicycle. Hmm? Right? Cycling is good for your health as well. Secondly, every Ahmadi should make it a point that he should plant two trees every year. This is how you can fight climate change. If you are here, if we have 30,000 Ahmadis here in the UK or more, then every year we plant 60,000 trees. If not possible here, then those who travel to other countries, they can plant trees there. So in this way, we can help control climate change. So that was uh, His Holiness uh, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmad, the worldwide head of the MD Muslim community. You were listening to his answer, a very beautiful answer given by him that one of the ways we can tackle uh, climate change and its uh, drastic impacts uh, is through uh, plantation and um, very beautifully answered and if you look through the islamic per- perspective or islamic lens we find that um, um, the holy prophet of islam has um, laid a huge um, um, has given us a beautiful teaching that cleanliness is half of the faith and if we act upon this teaching uh, certainly uh, we will find that our lives um, are will be in much more um, um, in much more good ways and um, in the holy quran Allah almighty has said that uh, corruption has appeared on land and sea because of what men's hand have wrought that he may make them taste the fruit of some of their uh, doings so that they may turn back from evil and the holy prophet uh, of islam has also encouraged the restoration of wasteland saying he who revives a dead land will be rewarded and when any creature eats of it this will be counted as an act of charity for him and the holy prophet um, the may peace and blessing will be upon him has also said that don't waste water even if you are by a running river so these are the beautiful teachings of uh, islam and um, uh, his holy and the holy founder of islam um, and he has showed us by uh, his role model as well 
so as muslims we should try and follow his uh, role model and try to try to implement um these his actions uh, in our lives in the best possible manner may allah almighty enable us to do so with these uh, words um we um we will um delve into our next segment um which is about raising awareness for postpartum depression ppd and the gist of the story is that around 1 in 5 women have mental health problems in pregnancy or the year after birth and 1 in 8 will suffer from postpartum depression in a recent case of postpartum depression ppd ariana ariana sutton of um, massachusetts um, state of usa um, she took her life a week after giving birth to twins her husband hopes to raise more awareness about the severity of uh, about the severity and tragedy of ppd and that's a big news and um, uh sometimes we underestimate uh such things that you know such things don't matter they don't really exist but they do really exist and they has a huge impact on people's life especially the new uh, moms and um mubariz can you tell us that why do some uh, mothers suffer from uh postpartum depression ppd and what are some common signs of ppd so ppd is a complex condition uh, influenced by by various factors um such as hormonal changes after childbirth there is a rapid drop in hormone levels including um estrogen and 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 progesterone which can contribute to mood changes and emotional vulnerability uh emotional and and physical stress um you know the the physical demands of of pregnancy labor and childbirth along with the challenges of caring for a newborn can be overwhelming and lead to increased stress levels then there's uh sleep uh, um deprivation newborns require frequent feeding and care often leading to disrupted sleep patterns for for mothers you know um sleep sleep um deprivation can can um you know it can excel your mood disturbances and 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 increase the risk of developing ppd then there are uh, certain uh, psychological factors women may may experience feelings of of um anxiety or or self doubt related to their new role as a mother you know past experiences of of mental health issues previous episodes of depression or a history of ppd can can also increase the risk um so common common signs and symptoms of postpartum depression include you know persistent sadness emptiness significant changes in appetite and sleep patterns feelings of of worthlessness guilt or shame difficulty bonding with the baby intense ir- uh, irritability or anger 
and thoughts of self-harm or harming the baby. Um, thank you very much, Mbaris. Uh, right now we have our next guest uh, with us, um, um, Mark Williams. Uh, Mark Williams uh, is Emeritus Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Oxford. Um, having held posts at the Medical Research Council's Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit at Cambridge and the University of Wales, Bangor. The main focus of his research and clinical work has been to understand how best to prevent serious clinical depression and suicide. He co-developed uh, mindfulness-based um, um, cognitive therapy, MBCT, and was founding director of the University of Oxford's um, Mindfulness Center that works to prevent depression and enhance human potential through the therapeutic uh, use of mindfulness across the lifespan. His most recent work focuses on how to sustain and deepen mindfulness through an eight-week program that uh, explores feeling tone, uh, vedana, frame by frame, and explained in the new book, Deeper Mindfulness. Uh, Mark Williams, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, peace be on you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, with regards to depression and uh, more uh, specifically postpartum depression, PPD, um, have there been any advancements in treatment uh, to help cope with it? I think it sounds uh, the, the sort of thing that you've already been talking about, mm -hmm. about uh, postpartum depression, uh, it shows that it's like other types of depression. So the best treatments for postpartum depression, mm -hmm. which happens, as you've been hearing, between some 10 and 20 percent of women and actually their partners as well. So partners get postpartum depression, not just the not just the mums. Um, and the, but the treatments for postpartum depression in either the, the mums or the partner is the same treatment as for other sorts of depression. So cognitive therapy. Um, Mindfulness-based cognitive therapy has been found to be good, the, the, mm -hmm. the work that we've been doing. And if it's very severe, antidepressants, and your midwife can advise on which antidepressants are safe. Um, but usually um, the talking therapies or the class-based therapies like MBCT are the ones that are recommended to try first. Hmm. And what is the, the difference between postpartum depression and baby blues? Are there uh, any similarities between the two? There are similarities, but they seem to be very different. So baby blues are very common. Um, they happen in the women straight after birth, if they're going to happen. 50% of women mm. will have baby blues. Um, the mood swings up and down. There's sad moods, but also euphoric moods. It feels a little like it out, like moods are out of control. This can last for a few hours. Or it might last up to a couple of weeks, but then it disappears by itself and doesn't really require any any sort of treatment. Just just sort of care and sort of like surfing the moods, um, mm. just being prepared to make space for them as the, as they come and go. Mm -hmm. So you co-developed MBCT to help prevent relapse and depression. Can this be applied to postpartum depression or, or are there any other forms of treatment that would be more sus uh, sustainable for mothers? 
Uh, well, the good thing about MBCT is that we developed it as a prevention of depression. Mm. That is, you can do it even when you're not feeling depressed. Um, there's a book called The Mindful Way Workbook, uh, mm. which is a self-help book that you can work through. Um, and you can do that by yourself or perhaps with a buddy, with a friend or in a class with uh, MBCT. And you can do that at any time. Um, but if you uh, have not suffered from depression in the past, um, it, it has to be said that, that most depression that happens postpartum is, is, as you've probably been hearing, a reactivation of a previous episode. Mm. Um, so if you haven't been depressed in the past and you just want to learn mindfulness, then there's a book called Mindful Birthing by mm. Nancy Bardica, who's a midwife in the United States. Uh, Mindful Birthing is, which she's developed mindfulness-based childbirth and parenting for people specifically, expectant parents when they're expecting a baby. Um, but if you've been depressed in the past and you really fear that you might get depressed again, then yes, MBCT is uh, is is very very good and there are classes on that you can get online classes mm -hmm. um, and there's there's books as well as i've said um professor if you can is it possible if you can um, uh, precisely explain to our uh, listeners for our listeners the the therapy of uh, mbct so it's an eight-week course um, as I said, taught online or in classes, mm -hmm. in which you learn to, um, to, to through simple forms of meditation, mm -hmm. which are the same sort of meditations that you do in a, in a faith setting or in the secular setting. So it, it comes from Buddhism, but it's there in Christianity and Islam and, and Judaism, the sort of the quiet, finding a quiet space, a quiet time. And the, the, what's different from prayer mm. is that you just sit quietly and allow the thoughts to come and go. And you learn to stand back from your thoughts and see them as if they're floating past on a stream mm. or like clouds in the sky. So you don't try to stop your thinking or mm. clear your mind. You simply sit and, and begin to learn. And it takes some time. That's why it takes eight weeks mm. to learn to see your thoughts and, and feelings coming and going. And what people find is that they, they don't take their thoughts so personally. Um, and uh, because when you get depressed, you're often saying to yourself, I'm useless, I'm no good, I've never been any good, nobody wants me around, I'm no, you know. And all of that propaganda in the head can be very painful and very destructive. So mm. it's actually learning um, to see the thoughts coming and going and, and what we call decentering or standing back a little uh, mm. for them. And interesting, people who've done this work in a secular and a health, in a health service context, they then find if they, if they are a person of faith, that actually it helps their prayer as well, mm. because often we get distracted in our prayers. So it, I think it's a really interesting sort of bridging between a life of faith and the secular world and the everyday world, the world of everyday life. Mm. Uh, Professor, you have said uh, that it's an online um, classes and an eight-week program um, for our listeners who want to subscribe and uh, listen to those classes how they can uh, which which is a website and how they can subscribe to those so if, if they look for Oxford Mindfulness Foundation the mm -hmm. Oxford Mindfulness Foundation mm -hmm. there, are, there are the classes there so that MBCT and the thing to look out for is MBCT for life Mm -hmm. um, which is this sort of NBCT adapted for everyday life. Um, and also 
there's, a, there's other classes called the, the Finding Peace in a Frantic World. Mm-hmm. And then there are also classes based on our new book, Deeper Mindfulness. So the Oxford Mindfulness Foundation has a whole suite of classes that you can you can listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Right. And, yeah. 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 You can you can speak more. Yeah. So um, and uh, so there's that variety of classes. And of course, some people just buy a book and and work through it. The Deeper Mindfulness book has stream uh, streaming and downloadable meditations uh, lasting from 10 minutes uh, upwards, so they're quite short. Um, and uh, our book, Peace in a Frantic World, or Mindfulness, Peace in a Frantic World, has, has meditations as short as three minutes. So you get a chance to try it out for yourself um, with the CD or with the downloads. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can do a course online as well with a teacher. So you can take it you know, one step at a time, if you want, you can buy a book and try the meditation for yourself at home or with a friend, mm-hmm. and then you can go online and, and find a course at the Oxford Mindfulness Foundation uh, if you if you wish to. Mm-hmm. Um, professor, just going back to the PPD again uh, of the yeah. new moms, um, I just want to ask that um, what role uh, can the husband um, play in this uh, in this uh, part? Well, I think it's a really important thing for the husband to understand what's going on and be sympathetic because it might seem mm. um, that his wife has sort of disappeared and gone away. And this can be very painful. And the, the husband can sort of blame his wife or blame the baby. And it's really, and of course, we know that the husband gets gets depressed as well. And that can be serious. Mm. And therefore, the husband has to realize that he also is vulnerable mm. and that looking after himself. So one of the things that we do in the mindfulness class is encourage both the husband and the wife to take it at the same time or to do their own, to, to do it by themselves so that they they can go to separate classes or they can go to the same class or they can read the same book um, and work through it by themselves, not necessarily together with their wife, but, but maybe separately, depending on how they'd like to do it. Mm-hmm. What's been found is research has shown that if the partner or the carer is themselves learns mindfulness, mm-hmm. then they, they understand the other person more and they understand themselves more. They can see their own moods. <laughs> you know, when, when you're a husband and your wife has had a baby, then it can be a very turbulent time in a relationship. And mm. um, so how to learn to surf that turbulence and how to deal with the turbulence, like learning to surf on a big wave, you have to start with small things and then you learn how to do it. So uh, the husband can learn to, to deal with their own moods and um, and take care of themselves. And when they take care of themselves, they'll also find themselves wanting to take care of their wife as well. Mm, yeah, nicely explained. And uh, Professor, while um, therapy is commonly used um, by those in depression, what strategies can be used by, uh, by other family members uh, of mothers with PPD to help support them during this time? You have, you have talked about the partners. Uh, yeah. What about the other family members? I think what's really nice is listening, just listening, not necessarily offering advice, but just listening, making the space, paying attention, really looking, really, really loving. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I mean, obviously, there are practical things to help out, shopping, cooking, childcare if other children are around. 
Mm. But that quiet love, understanding and support, without giving advice, just being there. Often when people say, I don't know how to cope, Mm -hmm. uh, they're not actually saying, give me a list of 10 things I can do to cope. (laughs) They're actually saying, I want to be heard, I want to be loved, I want to be held, I want to be heard, I want to be seen. Mm-hmm. And, and so the best thing for other family members, I think, and for um, you know, grandparents and so on, is to quietly do things, say, is there anything I can do to help? You know, and maybe just uh, you know, doing a bit of shopping or doing a bit of childcare, but with not being intrusive, but just being there. Mm-hmm. And really um, uh, you know, not being over-involved, but 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 be, being being present, being present in a loving way. Mm, yep, certainly. And uh, lastly, Professor, um, from your research, uh, what have you found uh, to be the best course of treatment for those suffering from depression? I know you have explained uh, very beautifully already, but uh, if there are any other yeah, course of treatment for those suffering from de- depression, you can. Um, for our listeners, if you can tell us. Yeah. Well, there are, luckily there are many talking therapies that are recommended, um, and cognitive therapy is a very good one if you can find that, and many people find that really helpful. And again, you can get that online, mm. um, uh, usually from a local therapist. Your GP will know how to access that best. Mm. Um, and again, with cognitive therapy, there are self-help books you can get to work your way through it, and it, what I'd recommend if you, whatever you do, is if you use a self-help book, try and find a friend who's prepared to go through it with you if you can, so you can buddy up. So it's not just you alone, but you can sort of do it together a bit, you know? Um, have a bit of fun with it, if you like. Mm. Um, I've also mentioned antidepressants, which for severe depression that, that really you mm. can't do anything about, that it's, it's, for many people it's a lifesaver. And a lot of us think oh it's got to be either psychological talking therapies or antidepressants but actually um you can do both and uh it, and and again the gp will help with that but when you go through the childbirth process you'll have a lot of contact with midwives perhaps with health visitors and um chatting to the midwife is really good because they can give a well-balanced approach and they can help distinguish between baby blues and the more severe depression that can come on not necessarily immediately after the baby's born, but in the in the first year, and will la- generally last longer than two weeks. The mood is very low. You don't enjoy things very, very much. You feel guilty, worthless. Your sleep is affected. Your eating is affected. That's 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 the real depression. Mm. That's not the baby booze. That's the depression that goes on for a long time. And then it's really worth talking to somebody, um, uh, talking to GP, or you're getting back in touch with the midwife and finding help for that. And remember that again, it's not just the mums, but the dads and other, you know, can, can also suffer in that way. So it's worth really looking out for that and um, not just thinking, oh, well, I'll get over it next week. You know, sometimes these things do need extra help. Talking therapies, cognitive therapy, antidepressants, or using the, the mindfulness-based cognitive therapy that we've developed. Um, Professor, thank you very much. Really beautifully explained and uh, that was um, um, a very you know um, beautiful um, uh, session with you uh, thank you very much for being on the show it's uh, it's a delight thank to you. have you on the show uh, maybe thank you very much yeah, and i you. wish uh, everybody who's listening to you and might be helped by these sort of things i wish them well 
in their journey through the the, the new family. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, may peace be on you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a good day ahead. So that was uh, Mark Williams, uh, who is Emeritus Professor of Clinical Psychology at the University of Oxford, having held posts at the Medical Research Council's Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit at Cambridge and the University of Wales. The main focus of his research and clinical work has been to understand how best to prevent serious clinical depression and suicide. He co-developed a mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, MBCT, and was founding director of the University of Oxford's Mindfulness Center that works to prevent depression and enhance human potential through the therapeutic use of mindfulness across the lifespan. His most recent work um, focuses on how to sustain and deepen mindfulness through an eight-week program that explores feeling tone uh, vedana frame by frame as explained in the new book deeper mindfulness um, dear listeners with this uh, we will uh, move uh, to uh, our uh, move on and listen to a clip a short audio clip uh, by his holiness uh, his holiness will be giving the guidance about depression and anxiety um, let's listen to this short and precise clip so this is what Allah Ta'ala has said in the Holy Quran Allah that remembrance of Allah is the best way for the satisfaction of your heart right so if you remember Allah whenever you have any problem you bow before Allah you offer your five daily prayers fervently, sincerely, then Allah will give comfort and satisfy your heart, right? And resultantly, you will feel comfortable and better. So that was His Holiness, um, Hazrat Mizam Masroor Ahmad, uh, the worldwide head of the MDM Muslim community, explaining and giving the uh, beautiful answer um, that how we can tackle um, the impacts of uh, depression or the, uh, the depression itself and he said that um, the best uh, possible way is uh, through the remembrance of Allah and uh, it is a teaching of the Holy Quran and uh, the guidance uh, from the uh, from Allah the Almighty given to us uh, as Allah the Almighty has created us and uh, he has given us uh, us the purpose of life and if we follow his commandments his guidance uh, then certainly uh, we will be living in such a society which is much healthier and uh, which will which will thrive in the best way um, if we look uh, on the Islamic teachings, we find um, many more examples, and um, uh, there's a quotation, quotation from the book of the um, Chaudhary Hazrat Sarzafla Khan Sahib, um, 
may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him uh, he once said that we must look after physical health for the spiritual progress of the soul without the upright maintenance of body you cannot have a spiritual life the body is a container for the soul if you break the container then its contents will spill the body and soul are associated in this very manner and any damage to the body will affect the soul um, very beautifully explained by him that um, the physical health has a direct link to the health of the soul and if we take care of our look after our spirit's physical health then only we will be able to um, lead a good healthy life um, spiritually as well and then only then we can you know able to um, follow the commandments of the of Allah the Almighty um, more in a in a much more better way so with this uh, we will take a short break and then after the break we will move to our last segment uh, which will be about um, childbirth has hit its lowest in a decade uh, in the UK. Please do uh, join in after the break. We find anxiety and turmoil continue to spread and increase in the world. We find so much strife, restlessness and disorder. We find countries engaged in wars. Terrorist groups, political parties, major powers of the world, all consumed by their efforts to maintain or acquire supremacy, and leaving no stone unturned in their efforts towards pursuing their objectives. With all these hostilities engulfing the entire world, we also find a grand solution. We find a serene voice, a voice of reasoning and logic, travelling across the world forewarning that if these actions continue, then most surely the entire planet will succumb to a detrimental end. With the rapid decline of international relationship, the chances of the entire globe once again engaged in war is increasing daily. This time wars will be fought with such weaponry that will leave widespread devastating effects. If a person is shot by a bullet, then it is sometimes possible for him to survive through medical treatment. But if a nuclear war breaks out, then those who are in the firing line will have no such luck. The weapons available today are so destructive that they could lead to generation after generation of children being born with severe genetic or physical defects. Thus, if the major powers do not act with justice, and do not eliminate the frustrations of smaller nations and do not adopt great and wise policies, then the situation will spiral out of all control and the destruction that will follow is beyond our comprehension and imagination. Even the majority of the world who does desire peace will also become engulfed by this devastation. This is the dreadful reality. By adopting aggressive policies and utilizing force, the world will be compelled to think of radical solutions, the most radicalized being war. Recently, 
a very senior Russian military commander issued a serious warning about the potential risks, risk of a, a nuclear war. It was his view that such a war would not be fought in Asia or elsewhere, but would be fought on Europe's border, and that the threat might originate and ignite from Eastern European countries. Though some people will say that this was simply his personal opinion, I myself do not believe his views to be improbable. But in addition, I also believe that if such a war breaks out, then it is highly likely that Asian countries will also become involved. Have these words of the Khalifa not been proven to be true to the letter? The crisis between Russia and Ukraine have brought back memories of the Cold War, with nearly a hundred member states of the United Nations failing to recognize the control of Crimea by the Russian Federation, is that not a repeat of the past? When the Arab Spring first came to pass, many people in the world considered it to be a great means for the Arab world to come out of the Dark Ages and embrace modern times. The reality was quite the contrary. Is the world going towards this devastation? Hundreds of thousands of innocent lives have been lost, especially in the Middle East. How many more will it take for mankind to take note of the Khalifa's message? There's an urgent need to end all kinds of hatred and to lay the foundations of peace. This can only be done by respecting all kinds of sentiments of each other. If this is not done properly, honestly and with virtue, it will escalate into uncontrollable circumstances. So what is our responsibility? Most surely to listen to and spread the words of the Khalifa and put them into practice. Save the world from the pit of doom that it is so closely standing upon. The Appreciator, the one who bestows his grace on his servants, which he abundantly grants in response to meager and trifle efforts of his servants. And Allah will soon bestow a great reward upon the believers. And Allah is appreciating, all-knowing. There is an account narrated about Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani, may Allah have mercy on him, that when he set out away from home for the purpose of his education, his noble mother sewed his share of 80 coins into the underarm of his shirt and advised him, Son, do not lie. When Syed Abdul Qadir departed, on the first day of his journey, he passed through a jungle that was inhabited by a large band of thieves and robbers. A party of robbers confronted and apprehended him. The robbers asked, What have you got in your possession? Syed Abdul Qadir thought to himself that he was being tested in the first stage of his journey. He reflected over his mother's advice and said, I have 80 coins which my noble mother has sewn into the underarm of my shirt. The robbers were extremely surprised on hearing this and said, what is this dervish saying? We have never seen such a righteous man. They took him and putting him before their chief related the entire story. When the chief questioned him, Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani gave the same response. Finally, when his shirt was torn at the place that he had described, it turned out that there were indeed 80 coins sewn into his shirt. 
All the robbers were astonished, and the chief asked why Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani had told them the truth. At this, Syed Abdul Qadir Jalani mentioned the advice that his mother had given him before he departed. He said, I have set out as a student of religion. If I had told a lie at the very first stage of my journey, what could I expect to attain? And so, I chose to stand by the truth. When Syed Abdul Qadir had said these words, the chief burst into tears, fell at his feet, and repented for his sins. It is said that this chief was the first follower of Syed Abdul Qadir Jilani. In short, truth is a thing that delivers a person in even the most trying and difficult of times. Saadi is true when he says, Never have I seen go astray the one who treads the right path. Therefore, the more a person adopts the truth and develops a love for the truth, the deeper a love and understanding they develop for the word of God and also for his prophets, because they are an example and source for all those who are truthful. This principle is also prevalent in the following instruction. Be with the truthful. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding. Yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina, allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet said that no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet was a true man of peace. Listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. A new station, the Voice of Islam, with live discussions, religion, and culture. Understand the true teachings of Islam with the Voice of Islam.
السلام علیکم ورحمۃ اللہ وبرکاتہ ڈیئر لسنرز ویلکم ٹو دی ویلکم ٹو دا شو اینڈ ان دس سیگمنٹ وی ول ٹاک اباؤٹ چائلڈ برتھ ہیز ہٹس اٹس لوویسٹ ان اے ڈیکٹ ان دا یو کے اینڈ اٹس اٹس اے ریلی کنسرن ناٹ فور فور ون کنٹری اور ٹو بٹ گلوبلی اٹس کنسرن because always the youth are the backbone of a society which runs the society and through which uh, society thrives and uh, <coughs> the gist of the story um, for this is that um, a study from the University of Oxford found that childbirth in England and Wales has reached its lowest record over the past decade to 1.55 in 2021 A similar trend is being seen globally with countries tied to historically higher birth rates also seeing a decrease over the decades so uh, uh, I think uh, I think of a concern uh, for for the whole world and uh, we see that um, there are several factors which are contributing to the UK's decreasing um, birth rate Now, for example, um, changing in societal attitudes, um, that there has been a shift in, in societal norms and values regarding family size and, and childbearing. Uh, many individuals are choosing to delay or forego having children uh, due to factors such as pursuing high edu- higher education, uh, career aspirations, uh, and... Um, and a desire for personal fulfillment and uh, the cost of uh, raising children uh, is also impacting um, um, people's life um, including education child care and housing has increased over the years and specifically after after the covid um, we have seen the inflation and uh, in uk in europe uh, uk was was one of the worst uh, countries in which inflation um hit uh, very badly and financial concerns coupled with economic uncertainty can can you know discourage some individuals from starting or expanding their families apart from this um increased access to contraception um Uh, is also uh, one of the concerns um, because improved access to constru- contraception methods and family planning services has given um, people uh, more control of their uh, reproductive choices although th- people have uh, you know choice um, for the family planning uh, it's a good thing but um, to a certain level if that uh, boundary or level crosses um, then um, it gonna impact the society as a whole in general then uh, we can see that um, apart from these factors uh, changing family structures um, are also impacted uh, on this um, the prevalence of non-traditional family structures such as single parent households or couples without children has increased this can influence the decision to have children on or the number of children individuals choose to have 
and uh, with this um, um, I would like to play a short uh, clip regarding this in which um, you know uh, it is explained that why Islam implores the virtues of marriage as a cornerstone to building the societies of the future they are very beautifully explained in in one of the programs of um, MTA uh, of MTA Muslim community which is called Faith Matters uh, let's listen to this short clip Islam and indeed other faiths but especially Islam actually implores the virtues of marriage as a cornerstone to building if you like a, a structured and an important society for the future the very question gives the answer. It is cornerstone, it's nucleus of society. You take a man and a woman, both of whom were strangers, and put them in the most intimate relationship. Why? Because it says from there, be fruitful and multiply in the Bible. And the Quran also speaks about that this, uh, this is going to be a mate to protect you, to help you, to find peace. And, and harmony and from there you'll produce the next generation again this this tells us why the it's so important for men and women to come together without which that next generation could not be created other than artificial means and, and artificial means is all there are other problems but the the question we were dealing with was about you know dating as the mm -hmm. the system to create that relationship okay. as opposed to some other system what we have seen always recommended in, in healthy societies, not just the Islamic society, it could be the Christian, the Jewish, the, the Hindu, the African, wherever you go, you'll find they always recommended to, to select the mate with wisdom, with a sense of purpose, as uh, Nadim Saab said, with an idea of future consequences, not just immediate pleasures that you have when your hormones are excited mm -hmm. and you, the lust is getting out of control and you just rush after as he says the piece of meat that's placed in front of you that is not the way to create a healthy society in this this perfect unit which is the, the building unit of society so islam has encouraged everything that leads toward that union of a man and a woman to create a marital state a nuclear family the beginning of creating a society adam and eve so to speak in the garden of bliss which from there it just begins to grow as opposed to just throwing couples together and you know having a good time and then moving on with forgetting about all the consequences of what you just did together that can never help a society so that was um, the answer uh, given by um, one of the imams of MD Muslim community that why Islam implores the virtues of marriage as a cornerstone to building the societies of the future and he has beautifully explained that it is uh, the answer is in itself is in the question that it is the cornerstone um, without this uh, our society cannot be built um, to run a society um, a future generation is needed and um, marriages are for this purpose so that um, the species of uh, human can be uh, can be spread uh, it can be propagated and um, in the Holy Quran Allah the Almighty says that um, they devised uh, monasticism as a means of seeking Allah's pleasure we did not prescribe it for them and they did not uh, observe it duly uh, 
and it is Allah who you know who provides sustenance um, for children and sometimes people do not uh, you know uh, bear children just because that they cannot afford um, financially um, but Allah the Almighty in the Holy Quran says that it is him who provides sustenance and um, then again regarding this in another place in the holy quran allah the almighty says that kill not your children for fear of poverty it is we who provide for them and for you so allah the almighty in the holy quran says that it he does not only just provide for the children but he is also provi providing for you so you do not need to worry about this thing that how i how i gonna afford uh, children uh, irrespective of this that Allah Almighty says that it is him he, he, it is him who is provided not only for the children but he is also, also providing for yourself for you so uh, if we keep in mind these teachings um, hopefully uh, we will build a, a society a very a thriving society in which um, uh, we can live uh, a, or we can live a healthy life then again um, um, if we look at um, another hadith um, the saying of the holy prophet of islam uh, we see that it is narrated by ibn abbas um, may allah be pleased with him he said that the holy prophet of islam once said that there is no room for celibacy in islam so it's important to note that you know that the uh, effectiveness of these measures varies and addressing low birth rate requires a comprehensive uh, approach a very comprehensive approach uh, which is tailored to the specific society social and cultural and economic context, uh, context of each country so these things we need to consider and um, try to implement in our life accordingly um, may Allah enable us to understand um, the words of the of Allah the Almighty in the best possible manner uh, with this we are we have reached the end of today's breakfast show uh, I would like to thank our listeners for tuning in um, uh, our experts for taking time out to discuss the topics and um, our producer Isha Ahmed, researchers Barira Sara Ariba, Naima Ariba and also our technician, our tech team Zishan and uh, lastly to our uh, to my co-host Mubari Zamini uh, please do tune in to the breakfast show tomorrow for our discussions. Uh, may peace be on you all.